0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. I am the goddess of empathy. Cast off your inhibitions and embrace love, truth, joy.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Discard your facades and reveal your true being to me. Cast aside your masks. And let me slip into your minds. Muzzle it.
2: Good morning, London. It is Thursday, February 14th, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right-wing. We're just right.
0: Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the everything will be alright.
2: Welcome to the show on this Valentine's Day 2008. Are you feeling full of love today, as everyone else is? The airwaves are just jammed with all sorts of love stories from coast to coast today. And uh, what we're going to do today, instead of uh, do it telling you love stories, we're going to talk about the history of love. And also later in the show, we'll be talking about some more bright ideas that we're getting out of City Hall, if you know what that might be about. And of course, the opposite side of love is hate, and we still have, unfortunately, a lot of that going on in our papers with Human Rights Commission's complaints and some follow-ups on some some of the issues that we've covered in the last few weeks. And uh, at the end of the show, I'll be answering uh, an email from someone who wrote to us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. Paul, who who wrote wrote his email to us, very well thought out, concerned about some of the things expressed on the show about virtue and religion that we talked about very early in, uh, well, that was in January, so can't always answer your email on a daily or weekly basis because of the nature of the show, but we do we do read it all, and we get around to it at some point. 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation today. And first, boy, did I ever open up a kettle, of, a kettle of fish here when I decided to look into, you know, I knew it was a lot of Valentine's Day was coming up today, and so what could I do that might be a little bit different from what everyone else is doing. I thought I'd look in my handy philosophy encyclopedia that I have uh, back at my office. It's a wonderful set. It it just has everybody you could ever think of in there who has had some background on philosophy. And I wondered if there would be something under the heading of love. And boy, was I ever surprised. Pages and pages and pages ended up spending half a day kind of wasting it, reading up on all this stuff, because it was really fascinating. And it's, uh, you have, it's really amazing how our ideas of love throughout history have actually shaped our religions, our institutions, our entire way of thinking, and our governments themselves. And I thought, uh, you know, in the first segment of the show, in the few minutes we have for that, I thought I'd give you what I found were most of the highlights of this. And, of course... Um, we start at some of the basic assumptions. And all of this is out of uh, this encyclopedia, which didn't really give anyone any credit for who wrote what. But it was very interesting to see what the background of this was. Now, what we were informed of here is that love, as as one of the most powerful of human impulses, was very early seen to be much in need of control especially if man, as a rational animal, was to be able to use his rational capacities. And I always found that interesting. There's this real uh, yin and yang and, you know, stress between the rational capacity and man's animal, you know, uh, out-of-control type of behavior. In the Platonic tradition, love had a unique metaphysical status for it existed in both the material and the ideal worlds. And we've talked about Plato in the past, how he believed in that mind-body separation and that in, in a separate reality beyond reality. Love can take on many forms, from gross sexual passion to a devotion to learning, but, it was argued, the ultimate object of love is the beautiful. Now, love in classical mythology, we've always heard the word eros, you know, the word eros as it is found in Homer, is not the name of a god, but simply a common noun meaning love or desire. It was not until Hesiod's Theogony that eros became one of the three primordial gods, the other two being chaos and earth. And of the three, Eros has the greatest power over his fellow immortals. He unnerves the limbs and overcomes the reason of both gods and men. And there again is that, you know, you're, you lose your mind. You're overcoming reason. For the history of philosophy, uh, the importance of Hesiod's brief mention of Eros lies in the attribution to him of a power that is basically the enemy of reason. Such poetic passages reflect certain observations about human nature and human behavior, and they always point to a struggle within man's psyche between a rational, controllable, prudent, and wise agent and an irrational, uncontrollable, mad, and foolish agent. So, as time went on in the earlier philosophic reflections, the Greeks admitted, back in the you know the, the, the height of the Greek. A period they admitted to several forms of love, and interesting if you compare these to some of the moors today, including heterosexual and homosexual passion, parental love, filial love, conjugal affection, fraternal feeling, friendship, love of country, and the love of wisdom, and all were associated with either eros or philia, which meant fondness or friendship, and love was believed to be a power capable of uniting people in a common bond. I think you still see a lot of that today. A lot of people say, yeah, all you need is love. The Beatles made that song, eh? and that came out of uh, Greek, Greek philosophy. And since not only people, but also animals and the elements were thus united, it was appropriate to conceive of this power as lodged in a single agent that governed the whole cosmos. According to Parmenides, love was created by the goddess Necessity, and isn't that interesting to note that at one point necessity itself was considered among the gods, with a capital N. The later attribution of peace and harmony to the goddess Aphrodite is clearly a renunciation of the early poet's idea of love. Aphrodite remains the goddess of sexual love, for sexual love has become one example of the universal power of union. It provides the philosopher with empirical evidence of a metaphysical principle, is, according to this, although they didn't really elaborate too much on what that principle was and how it related. And, but Plato, you know, if they say, if you want to look into all this, Plato was, of course, where we always a starting point, and for a complete expression of a philosophic concept of love, one must first turn to Plato's Symposium, which apparently no other document in European literature has had as much influence on the philosophy of love. The various speeches that are reported in his dialogue represent points of view with which Plato does not always agree, but which he apparently thought were important enough to be presented as typical of his time, so they were included. From Love's effect on morality, to its effect on knowledge. It was discussed in this context of, in the context, sorry, of various mythologies, wherein, and I found this interesting, quote, it is the lover, not the beloved, who has gained virtue through his or her love. And thus two kinds of love are distinguished, that of the heavenly Aphrodite and that of the earthly Aphrodite, or the love of the soul and the love of the body. And, uh, it's interesting that uh, on a show previous, I remember I was doing something on a survey of on morality and how uh, I said a lot of the things that people were considering virtues uh, weren't virtues, because one of them was being loved, and uh, being loved is not a virtue. You can't make it that. Not even in under Plato, was it? It was a lover who was the virtuous one, not the one who was being loved. And that, again, speaks to a theme that comes out of the whole giving and taking that we talked about at Christmas, you know, you can. Uh, who's the virtuous one in the giving and the taking, since they're part of the same act when you give a gift to someone? Now, of course, philosophy itself is the love of wisdom. In the dialogues, the two inter- interlocutors are Philo and Sophia, obviously elements of the word, quote, philosophia. Philo is the lover and Sophia is the beloved, which of course is what the name means if you look it up. The conclusion drawn from these econiums is that love is in essence the love of beauty and that beauty is nothing material. It is an ideal. But no man desires the ideal until he has been educated through philosophic training. And this is what uh, basically Plato had to say. Now Aristotle was primarily interested in the ethical and psychological aspects of love. Uh, which is typical of Plato, or of Aristotle, rather. He'd always <laughs> get down to the, to, to the roots of it. However, he utilized the metaphor of the attractive power of love in explaining the motion of the planetary spheres. And he used this term, the unmoved mover, you know, being the beloved, and the planetary system being the lover. Now, with some important differences, Aristotle's concept of this unmoved mover became part of the Christian concept of God, believe it or not. And so they took this idea, it was translated into Christianity. I'm really skipping a lot of parts here, folks. I'm just giving you the sketch of the whole thing. And in the Magna Moralia, which was probably composed at least in part by Aristotle, it is written that, quote, It would be strange if one were to say that he loved Zeus. It is not love towards God, of which we are in search, but love towards the things with life that is, where there can be a return of affection." Though there are myths in which gods and mortals have been in love with each other, the gods always first disguise themselves as mortals. These myths all deal with sex, basically, not with friendship or with paternal affection. And omitting some cultural heroes, there was, and this is interesting, there was no god or goddess in ancient mythology who had any love for mankind at any time. Prometheus was an exception, but he was punished for his help to mortals. And uh, the book notes, quote, there's no god in classical religion who could be called, quote, our father in heaven, end quote. Most of the divinities of, of the early times did little more than take revenge on the human race for injuries they had received from their fellow gods. Now in Judaism and Christianity, however, a new relationship to the divinity was established. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You've heard that one. And it will be observed that now love is not seen as a power that destroys man's reason, but rather as an emotional attitude that can be voluntarily produced. And I think that was probably a very positive contribution to the way people were thinking about love in itself and the whole concept of reason, that there is no conflict between reason and the emotions if you're in some sort of balance. And although the Church Fathers came closest to an identification of God with Aristotle's unmoved mover, which mentioned earlier, there were differences that have too often been obscured, notes my encyclopedia. The unmoved mover was neither a person nor a creator. He was uniquely able to produce change without being altered himself, and he could thus suffer no emotions whatsoever. But the biblical God was the very antithesis of this. And according to Plato, love rose involuntarily at the sight of a beautiful body. A man's erotic education consisted in a denial of the acts that usually follow, follow such a sight. Kind of like the Vulcans on Star Trek, you know, they're always in this state of denial about love and sex. Once every seven years or something, isn't it? I not how that goes with the Vulcans. But once that denial became a part of a man's character, he could rise to, you know, allegedly noble beauties until the final goal the contemplation of absolute beauty, completely detached from anything corporal, was reached. And again, that's obviously Plato talking. Then in the Middle Ages, uh, it's noted that it is apparent in mystical literature that erotic language is especially effective in communicating mystical experience, and the similarities between religious and sexual ecstasy are manifest. In mysticism, the climax of the love of God was self-annihilation which i guess explains why so many of the apocalypse stories accompany so many religious uh, mythology and mysticism whether religious or secular like even in global warming when you get into that which we'll be talking about a little later on going to take a break right now for a second we'll come back with a few more comments on this and then we'll switch to some other subjects as well back in a sec
1: my girlfriend's jewish she's from montreal I love this woman. I know I love her, because she told me. (laughs) Getting a girlfriend's like joining the army. You get a haircut, new clothes, and all the information's given to you on a need-to-know basis only. (laughs) She moved in, and a lot of my stuff didn't make it in the merger. (laughs) Oh, it was a hostile takeover, man. I felt like a flood victim. I was like that guy you see on the news. It all happened so fast. Whoosh! All gone! (laughs) Guess I'll rebuild or something. (laughs) Oh, as soon as you try to go to sleep, that's when the most bizarre stuff starts coming out of her mouth. Good night, baby. Do you think we were together in a past life? Yeah, and I died of sleep deprivation. Go to bed! Don't you feel like we're soulmates? Honey, I feel like we're cellmates. It's lights out. Come on! I need my rest so I can get up in the morning and fetch you things, m'lady.
0: Basically the problem is is that we're different species. Men are simple and women are complex. We love you guys, but we love you in a patronizing way. Like kind of how you love the village idiot, you know. I had this boyfriend who used to always say that I would ask him these trapdoor questions. These are questions that he would say he couldn't possibly give the correct answer to, no matter what he answered would be wrong. They'd be questions like, do you think I'm fat? Do you think my hair looks good like this? Do you think my behind looks big in these jeans? And I would think, why can't he answer these questions? Then I realized they all begin with, do you think? (laughs)
2: Yeah, okay. I hope that brightened your day a little bit. Welcome back. I'm Bob Metz. This is CHRW 94.9 FM, where you're listening to the show just right as part of the station's feedback series. You know, the, the word, or the term, I guess, the sentence, I love you, quote, is a very selfish statement. It's not a selfless one. And when one says that they love someone or even something, you can love things, It simply means that we value it, or we value that person, and we value it, I think, somewhat greatly. And people often ask, you know, can you measure love? And I think the answer to that is yes. You can't measure it in dollars, although some people try to. You can't measure it in, you know, any sort of currency, but you can measure it in terms of a hierarchy of your own values. And, you know, you like some things more and other things less. And it's ironic that when we, quote, give up something that is of a lesser value for a higher one, we call that a sacrifice when in fact that is not a sacrifice. It just means you made a higher priority and you made a choice. Is there only so much love to go around? I don't think so. Um, it's not a static thing and, and you don't divide it, it's, it's a response that, that has to be earned. Love, I think, is something that has to be earned. It's not, uh, you don't just love something just for the sake of it. You, there's a value attached to that. And I don't think that loving one person, we're not talking about sexual relationships here necessarily, but it doesn't in any way detract from love someone might feel for another. You often hear people say that uh, you know they love everyone equally. I love everyone. I love all mankind. And I often wonder if that person understands the value of that word. 'Cause if that were literally true, and I don't think most people that use it say mean it that way, but it would be kinda of promiscuous love, wouldn't it, if you loved everyone equally? And and what would it mean, or no love at worse, and what would it mean to your spouse if if you say I love you and then in the next breath, you know, they hear you saying you love all mankind and, and anyone and down the neighbor and it you know, it doesn't make any real difference. What's the special value? So I think sometimes we treat the word with a a uh, strange equivalence of value that can often lead to many misunderstandings. But that's enough for love for right now. I have a little, a few trivia items on the subject in case we're short of time today, but I don't think that's going to happen. Last week, I read a December 7th free press editorial by London litigation lawyer Fais- Faisal Joseph, who is representing some law students who filed a Human Rights Commission complaint against Maclean's magazine, for publishing an article by Mark Stein way back in 2006. We uh, talked about that last week and the week before and there's been some response to it. And interestingly enough, it appeared in the London Free Press. What's the date here? Maclean's Muslim articles foster mistrust, says the headline, and uh, written by three of the law students who are being represented by Faisal Joseph. Now. It is ostensibly a rebuttal to a previous column by Salim Mansour, though it does not really address any of his comments other than expressing an objection to being called Islamists, quote quote. Instead, the rebuttal merely reiterates exactly what was in the December 2007 Free Press editorial by Faisal Joseph that I read on the show last week. And basically, they want Maclean's to print their rebuttal to a Mark Stein article that appeared in 2006, and again repeated that Maclean's refused, stating they would, quote, rather go bankrupt than print their response. And again, as with Faisal Joseph's editorial, there's not one clue offered as to just what it is they're objecting to, or one fact offered that would refute anything that was said to which they would object. So instead of of again using their freedom of speech opportunity at the London Free Press to set the record straight on the facts, they choose instead to tell us why they want to make, or want to use a legal process to force their as yet unexpressed substantive opinions on Claims magazine. So I have the article in front of me here, including a couple of interesting responses to it. And what do they actually say? You know, they say, well, you know, the people who are criticizing them uh, don't understand the role of human rights commissions. They don't understand the true definition of freedom of expression, which is what I dealt with last week, and t- trust me, they don't, they don't understand it. And they're op- opposed to Salim Mansour's uh, article that also appeared in the free press called Assault Goes Beyond Violence, in which he denounced, quote, our human rights complaints against, against McLean's as an Islamist form of terrorism, end quote. And of course, I called it terrorism myself last week, because that's what it's all about. It's meant to shut people up. And, uh, you know, he talks about Western, the article talks about Western human rights tribunals. And uh, in the context of our complaint against Maclean's, that means first examining the article. Well, yeah, examine it. i got no problem with that. Tell us what's wrong with it. And it just says that it advances some sort of unsubstantiated theory, and that the danger of such publications is the mistrust that they foster. So that's the danger of it, that there's some kind of mistrust being built in what has been written. And then they say, when dialogue stops, we risk we risk revisiting some of our most shameful mistakes. McLean's and individuals such as Mansour have openly displayed their aversion to open dialogue between parties, they say. Now, as I pointed out last week, this is not between parties. You know, if, if, they want, if McLean's is another party, then you don't go to them and say, you've got to say what we're saying. That's not a dialogue. That's, you tell us what we want to hear, and we'll call that a dialogue. Is, 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 you know, it's like I said about the Chicago Tribune and the Chicago Sun last week, you don't expect each other to print the other paper's opinions about each other. It, that's not a dialogue you have to be an individual and separate to be a dialogue there's no dialogue there, and there's no parties there if you're forcing your opinions to be told you know to, to be said at the other person and freedom of speech you have to uh, do by your own means by your own property rights by your own methods and otherwise expect to be invited into other forums but interestingly enough a couple of uh, people responded to this in the London Free Press and they seem to see through the whole thing uh, Dawson Winchester of St. Thomas remarks, having read the Stein bestseller America Alone, The End of the World as We Know It, and counting myself as a regular reader of Mansour's columns, I marvel at the confused rhetoric and unbalanced reasoning in their bumbling critique of of Stein and Mansour. It is obvious they do not fully understand the meaning of a free press as we know it in Canada and other democratic nations of the world. And while I agree with Mr. Winchester's point of view, there's one little correction i would make i think yes mr winchester they do understand they understand perfectly what they are doing they're playing it by the rules they know that we have a freedom of speech and they want to change that that's what we have to learn to understand and i think that's the whole point here michael Manier here in london writes you know talks refers to this whole editorialist self-justifying piffle and offers this little fact here that I found interesting. In fact, Maclean's invited a reasonable response to the article, but the group's demands proved excessive. They wanted a five-page article written by an author of their choice to run without any editing by Maclean's and to be displayed on the cover with artwork of their own choice. Maclean's refused to accede to these dictates after having already printed 27 letters to the editor in response to the article. The complainant's contention that the purpose of their complaint against McLean's to the Human Rights Commission is to, quote, initiate dialogue, end quote, is phony and false. It does not take a law degree to understand that the type of complaint lodged against McLean's magazine, if successful, will stifle debate and silence free expression. Right on, Michael, you got that one right, and that's exactly what it is all about. So, you know, as far as the whole... Human Rights Commission thing goes, you know, with regards to my comment last week on this subject, well, ditto, 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 exclamation point, exclamation point, that's all I can say. You just keep talking over and over again. Now, in another totally unrelated subject, if you recall, a few weeks ago, we discussed the problem of inconsistent sentencing, where the punishment does not often seem to fit the crime. And at that time, I used the examples of Rob Ramage, Mark Emery, and Carla Homolka as my reference points of illustration. And my basic conclusion was that we end up with really ridiculously inconsistent and unjust punishments, whether they're too great or too little. It doesn't matter. You know, it could be too little for something or too much for something. We feel equally outraged. Because I think that happens because we're not concerned enough with judging the criminal. And we're overly concerned with judging the crime. I think we've got to get our heads out of that. Judges use sentencing not to mete out justice, but you know, to send the message, to create a deterrence, and et cetera, et cetera, to the point where the sense of justice, as, as far as the individual is concerned, has been totally replaced by law in a completely moral vacuum. And that's why I think it's just terrible. So it's, so it was great interest that I discovered an editorial by Edward Greenspan, appeared in the London Free Press, February 11th. Quote, the sentence is the crime, says the headline. Mandatory minimums often result in excessive prison terms. And, of course, it went on to establish its point. I wasn't going to really read the whole article to you, except for this one sentence, which I have always known, but I don't know why it's just not accepted as a, as a starting point. And he says, quote, There is no, nor has there been any, satisfactory empirical evidence to conclude that the implementation of a mandatory minimum sentence has ever deterred crime. And... You know, I have to agree with them. I just couldn't see some criminal who's about to commit a murder. Oh, what's the minimum sentence on this? Oh, no, I won't do it. Like, 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 people think like that, you know, especially people who are in that state of mind. And they don't read the papers, and they don't know what judge is meeting out what to who. They're not even aware of it. All that stuff, those messages are for you and me. They're not for the criminals. It's supposed to care, scare us, I guess. I don't know. But deterrence, I don't think, should ever be a primary function. Uh, of a justice system, just as crime prevention is a somewhat uh, misguided goal for our police forces, I think. You have to understand, you know, the law really is a recoursive instrument. It's not preventative. It's not the nature of the law to be that way. You don't call somebody to say, oh, I think I'm going to be robbed next week. You call them after the robbery has occurred and you hope for recourse and some sort of justice through either retaliation or some meeting out of, uh, you know, getting your property back, for example, if it was stolen. And I think it's the failure to keep this in mind that leads to all kinds of problems with the justice system. So they start making up all these penalties and controls and whatever, and then they find out the thing's just not happening the way it should. Well, there you go. There's another subject that I've put behind me. Now, after this next break, some bright ideas from our City Hall. I don't think so. I think we're heading the other way, and I'll tell you what I mean by that right after this.
0: I'm afraid to travel anywhere. I was, I, was, I was driving through Columbus, Ohio, when they had that, that, that sniper. <laughs> Gave me an excuse to speed. <laughs> Do you know how fast you were going? Faster than a speeding bullet. low flow toilets, right? The low flow
3: toilet. It's supposed to save water. You've got to flush it 72 times.
0: (laughs) You keep flushing and flushing and the poop keeps spinning around and spinning around looking at you. I'm not going anywhere! And you're yelling at the toilet, NO! You don't understand! This is not my house!
2: Another great idea from the environmentalist, the low flush toilet. I remember having to use one of those when we went to Florida because a lot of the houses down there are built with low flush toilets. And it's absolutely true. I don't know, are they actually saving anything with those things? Because uh, I've talked to a number of plumbers and they say, well, you know, plumbing systems just aren't meant to run with that little water. They've got to have a certain amount of flow, uh, water flow to them to be running properly and keeping the sewers. Uh, flowing in themselves but then again what do environmentalists care about actual environment they've got all their other agendas to talk about and that's what I'm talking about today kind of a dual theme you know on the one hand we hear all this talk locally here in the city of london about restructuring government and we've got it you know we have all these governance task force you know agrees to talk less and listen more is so a headline in the londoner under an article by or article by phil, phil McLeod. and uh, you know our politicians are always asking us for our opinions uh, which kind of tells me where they're at in terms of some of the issues and there's always this talk about changing how, whether we should have a board of control uh, which is not really an issue. They're not really asking you, do you want the board of control? They're asking you whether you want your vote for the board of control anymore. And by voting for no for board of control, they're still going to have a board of control, but city, city council will appoint them, and you don't get to vote for them anymore. So here's all these people who claim to be these democratic types that run out there, and they want to kill a vote for a particular level of government. And whether government is effective or not has nothing to do with how the ridings are structured, how the wards are structured, how many people vote. For example, a letter writer to London Free Press here writes, "...voters reap what they sow," uh, referring to the London City Council's fiscal mismanagement, which he sees going on all the time. And he blames Londoners for not having taken their election responsibilities at all seriously. Atrociously poor voter response of well below 50% is bound to produce a weaker council, he says. You reap what you sow, and we citizens don't seem to want to face that. Well, sorry to disagree, David. I understand your frustration with city council, but whether uh, 25% of us vote, 50%, 75%, or 100%, we're going to get the same city council. It's not going to change a thing. doesn't weaken them, doesn't strengthen them. It's got nothing to do with that. You know, why do polls work when they say that they only sample 1,000 people and they can figure out its accuracy, you know, 19 times out of 20 within a 5 percentage range, etc., etc.? Because you don't need to have everyone participate in an election. And many people who do not vote are exercising their right not to vote. I have not voted municipally. I'm trying to think maybe three, four elections now at least. And not because I don't want to. I'd love to vote for somebody in my ward, but there's no one there that I could support. And, of course, everybody says, well, why don't you run? Why don't you run? I've been there, done that, okay? And there's just not the support if you want to have fiscally sound management. It's just not out there. The public isn't voting for that kind of thing. At least the voting public isn't voting. And the rest of them are too fed up with the whole process because they know it's all a bunch of nonsense anyway. And speaking of which, I just can't believe this. I just look at this and I shake my head and I wonder, oh, my goodness, is this for real? This headline just says it all, and it's by Pat Maloney, London Free Press, February 8th. City asked to be enlightened by dark, end quote. (laughs) The contradiction just says it all. It's wonderful. And here's what Pat Maloney writes, quote, City Hall could ask Londoners to plunge into the dark to help shed light on a hot issue. Staff want London to join a growing list of cities taking part in Earth Hour, a worldwide environmental movement to shut off all non-essential lights and appliances for one hour on March 29th at 8 p.m. A few Ontario cities, including Toronto, Mississauga, Ottawa, and Sarnia, have already pledged to take part. London Hydro has expressed its support. Wow, there's a surprise. And Councillor Paul Hubert, who, of course, is on the Environment and Transportation Committee, so he sort of uh, has to say these things, is quoted in the paper saying, quote, any way we can promote environmental conservation and awareness is a positive thing. It's a whole shift in how we think, he said, which, you know, again, tells you why the environmental movement is a mental movement, not an (laughs) enviro-movement. And that's what it's about, believe me. The staff recommendations, and I don't know why they always say staff. Who is this staff? It's not city council, it's just some kind of staff. Uh, Go beyond city-owned buildings and include a push to get businesses, including restaurants and homes, involved. The rather romantic notion of encouraging candlelight dinners across the city, along with a request that TVs be turned off, are among the staff ideas. Oh, man, I just think about that. I'm thinking, how juvenile can you get? I mean... Okay, guys, let's all do this silly thing. And then we have climate change. This is an ad. This is actually an ad that appeared in the free press, paid for by you and me, the taxpayer. And it says, Climate change is everyone's business. Have your say. Complete the Sustainable Energy Survey, reads the taxpayer ad newspaper in the February 6, 08, uh, 08 London Free Press that I had. And it states, quote, Demand for electricity... Natural gas, oil and gasoline, will exceed our supply sooner or later, and, quote, boldly asserts the premise of the survey. Quote, use of sustainable energy must rise, and demand for energy must fall. Impact on generations to come depends on what we do or fail to do in the next decade. Mayor Anne-Marie DeCicco-Best has established the Mayor's Sustainable Energy Council to help address these challenges. Where do you think our focus should be? What are you willing to do? Please visit www.london.ca. And that's exactly what I did, and I didn't find anything there. The survey, apparently, all they want you to do is you know write a letter, and there's a link there, and you can send them a letter about what you think that they should be doing, which, of course, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Anybody going to waste their time on that? But consider the... Uh, consider the the assumption of this. Demand for electricity, natural gas oil and gasoline will exceed our supply. Why is that? Why will demand exceed supply? Because there's no more supply being made. Because we've regulated ourselves to death to the point where we haven't produced a new refinery in North America for over 30 years. We're still using the same refineries we used back in the 50s and 60s. We haven't built anything new here. So obviously, we become more dependent on foreign oil, foreign energy. and. The idea that demand must fall is completely erroneous. It's not going to fall, know, and, and everybody knows it's not going to fall. And the way they, pl- they, they say this to you, it sounds like you have to cut your demand, you as an individual, when really that's not the problem. The problem is that there are more individuals, even if we all cut back to basic sub- bare subsistence, which is basically what these folks are calling on us to do. Uh, it's not going to change anything because there's going to be more of us tomorrow. So we need to create more energy. Period. Full stop. There's no question about this. All they're talking about is conservation. We fix the pie, just like they did with health care, with education, with energy. Anything the government touch turns to stone. It doesn't grow anymore. Even culture dies. If the government regulates it, controls it, or does anything like that. And it's the same with this stuff. And... This is just ultimate, the ultimate, I mean, this, this is out of an Ayn Rand novel, okay? And this is written by Gord Harrison in The Londoner. Quote, are you willing to sacrifice to benefit the rest of the world? Mindlessly muses Gord. Quote, we may not think so now, but as fuel supplies decline and price increase due to higher global demand, you know, so yeah, okay, we actually, fuel supplies are not declining. They're going up all the time. The demand is exceeding the increase, and, 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 or, or at least they're keeping the same. So it's a balance between demand and supply that is changing. So he says, we've painted ourselves into a costly corner, and it's undeniable. He says, I recently read our consumption rates in total, and there he says it, in total, okay, are too high, and unsustainable as well. Well, unsustainable if you aren't going to produce any more electricity. Is that the plan? Is that what you're telling us? No more electricity, okay, that's it. We can't afford to make any more. Because it's probably true. That's why everything has to be privatized. And then he goes on, you know, greenhouse gases are 32 times higher in North America, Western Europe, Japan, and Australia than are in the developing world. Oh, boy, greenhouse gases. That means CO2, right, mostly. And I'm just not convinced CO2 is a problem for anything at any time in anywhere. I just haven't seen that yet, sorry. Now, Harrison refers to Jared Diamond, University of California professor who, quote, contends the world is already running out of resources, and if China alone caught up to our levels, and consumption rates of oil and metals would double. And if India, as well as China, were to catch up, world consumption rates would triple. Well, no, I don't think so. I think world production rates would pr- triple. You know, consumption goes on. You have to live. And all those people who are living in a lot of those countries are living, but they're poor, and they don't have the kind of style of life that we can live, live on because of their economies, because they think the way a lot of these writers and our politicians think. And you know, here's Gord. Are we headed for disaster? quote? I think the answer is maybe. Good answer, Gord. That's what makes your column so interesting. <laughs> you know, and he says, I prefer to believe that most people will make sacrifices willingly as they learn by experience that their present consumption rates are unsustainable. Which, you know, when I hear somebody talking like that, I'm going, well, are you going to make this an unwilling proposition? Or what are you talking about? If we aren't willing to sacrifice, what then? Does the fact that you prefer that we sacrifice willingly mean that you wouldn't force us to sacrifice? Or is the answer to that also, you know, just a maybe? And then, again, Gord, I just clicked another article by him just this morning. Okay, I just clipped this one this morning. It's from February 13th. Um, Londoner, which I guess is yesterday's paper, and, you know, he says, first I want you to take five minutes of your busy schedule and read Gwyn Dyer's recent article entitled Climate Change that appeared in the Free Press on the weekend. I did read it. I have it in front of me. Uh, I didn't find anything of any particular, uh, you know, revelation in it, but I'll get to that in a second. But Gord talks about this little book he bought for five ninety nine dollars at chapters called The Little Green Handbook by Ron Nielsen, an, astro- an Australian nuclear physicist. And it says in there, you know, the population explosion, diminishing land resources, diminishing water resources, destruction of the atmosphere, approaching energy crisis, social decline and conflicts, and increasing killing power, you know. And then he, and he says he continues by stating that through many developed countries, or sorry, that though many developed countries subscribe to a market-first or a market-driven future based on a faulty assumption assumption, The planet has an almost unlimited ecological capacity to support development and industrialization. There is a far better option. And he says, with proper global management, we can fix it all, right? Well, think about what he's saying. First of all, all those symptoms he's talking about, population explosion, diminishing land resources, water resources... Uh, energy crisis, you know where all those things really exist the worst? They're all in those managed economies, in those managed economies that he's advocating, because we're going to manage the whole globe now, just the way we manage the the economies. In those so-called market-driven developed countries, that's why they're developed. (laughs) You see the connection there? If you've got people working in their own self-interest, you're going to have a developed economy. If you've got people who can, you know, count on their property rights and know that what they own is theirs, which is not what any of these ideas will lead to. All of these global warming ideas are to get at your property, take your property from you, and ta- give it to somebody else, basically. And so, you know, it just goes on and on like that. And I look again at his at the article he recommended we read by Gwen Dyer, you know, climate change, panic in the trenches. It's just fear-mongering. And what does he talk about in this whole two-thirds page article? I highlighted maybe a handful of... Uh, words that actually meant anything, because there was no, nothing in there you could put facts to. You know, discussing mandatory internationally binding commitments on greenhouse gas. There it comes, folks. It's going to be mandatory, what is voluntary today. And they're talking about climate change may cost, uh, you know, speculation and guessing, uh, South Africa, 30 cents of its main crop maize by the year 2030. When you hear that kind of stuff, just put it aside. They can't even predict the weather for tomorrow, for heaven's sakes. And of course, the whole thing is of you know, I I, and I'm probably guilty of this. It can't happen here. That's what he's saying. I'm one of these guys going around saying that it can't happen here. Well, and then he says we must just hope that physics and chemistry will wait until we're ready to respond. He says, and then he says he's, that he interviewed a couple of dozen senior scientists, government officials, and other think tank specialists whose job it is to think about climate change. Well, of course, they're being paid to say all this stuff by government tax dollars. I've, I've, I've gone through this in detail. And the belief that there are more scientists that believe in global warming than there are those who don't is absolutely false. It's like 10 to 1 against. But you will not hear about the Oregon Accord. You'll hear it once or twice mentioned by the odd person or some of the other things that were signed by bona fide scientists, not by the people that these guys are talking to. And then he says, recent indications that the warming has accelerated dramatically. Well, isn't that funny? I just read another editorial by Laurie Goldstein. In fact, I think his New Year's editorial, or January 31st, where he said exactly the opposite, that they've measured our climate for the past 10 years, and, oh, it, it stopped getting warmer. Isn't that amazing? And then he says, you know, there is now a fear that the oceans might not be able to absorb all the carbon dioxide. Well, there's that fear again. Fear, 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 and maybe, maybe, maybe. And then he concludes, maybe the experts are all wrong. I mean, there are only hunches to go on, end quote. And uh, that's about all I can say about Gwen Dyer. I mean, how can you read that stuff and walk away from that with any opinion? It's really funny, you know, when you read the stuff in the London Free Press on global warming, anything to do with green issues and all that, it's almost virtually the opposite of what you read in the National Post. The National Post has articles written by scientists. I'm not saying they're all right and that they have all the answers, but they certainly aren't saying that they have all the answers. (laughs) Whereas the other side is saying, we have all the answers, you shut up, and we're going to force you. Even though your mind tells you that what we're saying is wrong, we're still going to force you to do what we believe is right, but you believe is wrong. And where is that any different from what happens in religion? And you think that's going to make for a, a peaceful world in the future as, the, as governments start getting into debates over who gets all these, uh, you know, these carbon credits and all that nonsense that they're getting into politically? It's just outrageous. And then we have, in the February 12th, Free Press, again, Paul Burton... Oh, Paul, 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 Paul. Again, one hour of darkness helps lighten the planet, he says. On March 29th, at 8 p.m., we're being asked simply to turn off the lights the television, the computer, everything that uses power for 60 minutes, thereby sending an important message about the fragile future of the planet. Well, I'm curious. To whom are we sending this message, and what is the message? It doesn't really say, although he keeps referring to conservation, so I guess that's the message. And you know what? That's the wrong message. Totally the wrong message. We should be teaching production. We should be teaching people that we don't have these problems if we create more energy. If we have the energy we need, we can make our lives much cheaper. And if we do it the right way, if we do it through private you know, protection of private property rights, through letting those markets work, you know. And it's really funny, too, that March 29th at 8 p.m. happens to be a Saturday Okay, that's a Saturday, they're going to do all this. And the irony in my personal lifestyle (laughs) is that Saturday at 8 o'clock is the only time of the week I turn my TV on. (laughs) So so should I leave it off then, too? And that's when I have company over. We watch TV together. It's a a social event for us. And we're not going to sit there in the dark for Paul Burton and the likes who think that the endarkenment is, in fact, enlightenment. And then, you know, he reminds us here, he says, uh, we've been forcibly reminded in the past by various blackouts how crucial energy is to our lives. So instead of having a blackout forced upon us, we can choose to cut the power. Well, we shouldn't have to be faced with that choice, you know. And why does no one ever suggest producing more? You know, you don't see that anywhere in any of these ideas. These people just couldn't possibly run a business. They couldn't possibly survive in the real world with the kind of ideas that they're pushing at us right now. You know, the whole light bulb thing. So, before we go to the next section, I got a couple of quick jokes for you here. And this uh, are you politically enlightened? And here's a quiz for your consideration. See if you can spot the truth in the following screwy light bulb jokes because there is a truth in them all. Okay, how many liberals does it take to screw in a light bulb? Answer, it depends on how many of their friends are electrical engineers. How many conservatives? does it take to screw in a light bulb? Any number. They're all really good at screwing up. How many New Democrats does it take to screw in a light bulb? None. They use candles because it creates more work. How many Libertarians does it take to screw in a light bulb? None. You can never find a Libertarian around when you need one. They think the market will take care of it. How many Progressive Conservatives does it take to screw in a light bulb? Well, it depends on whether they're AC, DC, or PC. Alternate conservative, direct conservative, or political conservative. But in the end, you still end up in the dark. How many Family Coalition or Christian Heritage Party members does it take to screw in a light bulb? None. They don't believe in letting anybody screw around. How many Greens does it take to screw in a light bulb? I got a lot of them, eh? (laughs) None. They'd rather be left in the dark. How many communists does it take to screw in a light bulb? None. They don't screw light bulbs in. They force them in. And of course, last but not least, how many Freedom Party people does it take to screw in a light bulb? Well, none. They're too bright to need light bulbs. Wow, I'm not biased or nothing, am I? So that's it for that. You know, I feel sorry for today's kids who are just being brought up in a world where they're being taught to curse their own survival or else the world as they know it will end. You know, they're being declared guilty of the ultimate original sin. That of their very existence, and the religion of green, which is politically red, really continues unabated. And we'll be back right after this to reply to some email. What do you teach in the kids?
1: Solar, wind, geothermal. These are the future, and they get it. They get it more than than people my age. You show them pictures of of the polar bears in the Arctic. That's powerful. They feel it. They take a real visceral response to know that habitats are being destroyed, so they want to write letters, they want to contact their congressman. When you ask the kids to write
3: a letter, how many do? All of them. You say you're educating these kids. I think you're indoctrinating them.
1: Absolutely not. The kids are, are writing what they want. We're not dictating. It's, it's not sort of...
3: It's nonpartisan. It says nonpartisan.
1: Nonpartisan is absolutely
0: correct. Smoke! Smog! Carbon monoxide! Carbon dioxide!
3: Week after week, Susan Cox comes into the schools and gives her green power lecture.
0: And as the levels of the ocean rise, what happens to our beaches?
3: Fossil fuels are the problem, she tells the kids, and President Bush is an oil man. Clearly what you're doing is partisan.
0: No, I'm I'm sharing with them the fact that we have a president who happens to be an oil man.
3: You tell them drilling will pollute the land. Do you ever tell them that most of the land is left untouched?
1: You know, I show them Alaska and... No, I don't, you know.
3: Why not? You can have a debate about oil drilling, but shouldn't the kids learn both sides? Shouldn't they be told that 99.99% of the Arctic Refuge would remain untouched? And shouldn't they learn the truth about the caribou? They coexist with oil fields. The Alaska Department of Fish and Games says the caribou population in Alaska's biggest oil field has quintupled since drilling began. You haven't heard that? No. I wanted to hear from the students what I'm they'd sorry. learned at these lectures. So I interviewed these Did kids who said power? frightening things about the future. They feared massive floods, increased cancer, drowning in our own garbage. They said President Bush is polluting the country. One said, so he can make millions for his friends. You say religion has a privileged
0: spot in our society. What do you mean by that? It is expected that religion will be treated with this kind of respect which you wouldn't treat a political belief or a devotion to um, a particular kind of music or a football team or something of that sort. Um, It has a, a license to get away with things which other beliefs do not. It's thought to be bad manners or bad form to criticize somebody's religion in the way that you are not forbidden to criticize their politics.
3: Is it entitled to have that position in our society?
0: I don't think it is. I don't think there's any reason, or at least, at very least, a good case should be made why why it's entitled to it, and no case has been made. No case has ever been made that satisfies you, in other words. Uh, Yes, I I think that that if you're going to say that something is immune to criticism, then a very special case has to be made. Is there nothing special about religion that you believe
3: entitles it to somewhat different treatment than politics or sports or anything else in society? No. Nothing at all well can you think of anything well the fact that there are billions of people who adhere to it you know leads one to suggest that it's
0: it ought to be taken seriously Uh, you can take it seriously because there are billions of people that doesn't mean you have to treat it with undue respect it doesn't mean you have to say i will not say a word against this because it's religion uh... any more than you would say that about a political opinion
2: and that of course was uh... richard dawkins speaking to steve pakin back on TVO. I uh, received a letter to our email at uh, chrw, or sorry, just write chrw at gmail.com from Paul, who's a regular listener, and basically I think was in a way expressing the opinions that you just heard expressed by Steve Pakin there that perhaps there's something about religion that maybe should not be criticized, and he he writes that he was listening to our show about, um, are religious people more virtuous? And he thought that the question was a little vague. It wasn't my question, by the way. It was a question brought up by the media. And he says, if a religious person is merely a believer, but acts contrary to the morals of his religion, then surely he is less virtuous than a non-believer who would not engage in such behavior. For instance, someone could sincerely believe that a god exists, but then go and steal from his employer. Compare that to someone who may not be a believer but would not ever steal a penny because his own rational or intuitive moral code precludes such a behavior. Who is the more moral? Well, of course, the latter is, and I think we agree on that, Paul. But Paul makes a distinction between atheists, I have to shorten this up a bit, and what he calls anti-theists, who are a little bit different. He says an atheist basically says he doesn't believe in God but doesn't, you know, bother the believers, whereas the anti-theist Theistic forces have, you know, making headway in political arenas and actually attacking religion and the ideas of religion. I'm not sure that that's exactly what is going on, and I haven't really heard any ideas. And I don't, I wouldn't recall attacking ideas as being anything violent or anything of that nature. I think that's part of the whole exchange of, of ideas. But, you know, if it speaks to anything, uh, you know, when you say that... Uh, Paul, that, you know, merely calling oneself either religious or a non-believer is no barometer for determining your morality. I think if that speaks to anything, it's to the point that religion and morality are unrelated, you know. If you're suggesting that a person's behavior is a test of his or her belief, maybe that's not even true, because many thieves or murderers have professed deep beliefs in a deity, and they didn't stop them from doing that, and of course that's what you've said there. So I don't think the source of morality is to be found, you know, in beliefs and deities. I just thought I'd leave you with this thought because this sort of touches on the whole subject of perhaps the whole God and religion thing, and it's by John McMurray out of an essay called Reason and Religion, and he makes the following observation, which I tend to agree with i agree with I lean towards it. It says it may strike many many of his readers as strange to define religion without any reference to God, yet it is in fact advisable to do so. The idea of God, says McMurray, can have no fixed meaning of its own which is not related to our experience of human relationships, and it is the significance of the term to the person who uses it that matters, not the fact that it is used or refused. When the idea of God has come to carry a meaning which is in fact false and irrational, the use of the term will Im- inevitably, inevitably imply this falsehood. The assertion of the existence of a God will be the assertion of a falsehood, and its denial, the denial of a falsehood. A process of development is always dialectical and includes negation. When, therefore, a society has crystallized the conception of God which is false, the professed atheist may be more truly religious than the theist. And we must remember that in human development a situation often arises where the falsehood of a traditional conception becomes clear long before any alternative conception which could command rational assent has been discovered. In fact, he says the orthodox ritual... Uh, you know, religious ritual of any society is always a symbol of its structure of personal relationships. And it is that which explains why so many people with no religious interests but have large economic and secular interests have an interest in maintaining the orthodox and traditional structure of their society. So it's very interesting observation by John McMurray. And that's it for today, folks, on this Valentine's Day. Hope you had a good time and join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right. Act right, think right, and take care.
0: Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be... Yellow. You tell a woman you love them one time, they want to eat that every damn day. <laughs> you didn't tell me you love me today. I don't. Hate those pop quizzes too, they wake you up in the middle of the night, okay, what's my name? <laughs> Can I buy a vowel?